0: Amen. Let's grab our Bibles, open to the book of First Chronicles. There in the Old Testament, First Chronicles 29, page 491 in the pew Bible in front of you. Uh, just uh, open up there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, First Chronicles. First Chronicles twenty nine, the last chapter of First Chronicles. We are nearing the completion of this series uh, that I'm calling New Year's Revolution. Uh, next week we'll pull it all together, and, and really, it's a, a bit of a departure from our normal uh, mode of operandum around here. Normally, I will preach through a book of the Bible. And we'll just go verse by verse until we uh, get to the end of it, and then we start a new book. Uh, and every once in a while, we get the opportunity to just step back and um, just allow the Lord to speak to us through various texts. I want you to, to know that last year, as, uh, as I studied through the, the Bible, I made it a point to just be very prayerful, and ask the Lord to speak to me and help me. That I wanted to really uh, just seeing all the wonderful things that God has been doing among us, and we just had an absolutely phenomenal year in the Lord. We looking back on 2012 and everything that He's done. But through that whole process, I just asked the Lord. I wanted to be sensitive to Him and say, God, I really I'm asking you to to give me a a, a series of messages to start 2013. Lord, I'm not, I don't, I'm not asking you to, to give me messages that our country needs to hear. I'm not asking you to give me messages that our community needs to hear. Lord, I'm asking you to give me, give me what you want this congregation to hear. Lord, let's, let's start this year out and, and let's just begin. Let's walk into this year with a, with a heart that says, okay, we, we, we know what we need to do, we know where we're vulnerable, where we're weak, where we need to uh, be strengthened, where we need to declare war in the Spirit against where the flesh is attacking us. And that's really what these weeks have been. And uh, each one has been just, I believe, just specifically, directly uh, given to me by the Lord. And I have passed that on to you. It hasn't been easy. Uh, We've conquered some very large uh, issues So we've looked at what scripture says and we've had to just contend with God's word with regards to these issues and all of them represent, if you think back on what we've talked about, they all represent uh, places in our life where we tend to believe what uh, makes sense to us. We tend to uh, distance ourselves from what God has to say about difficult topics and so we talked about bitterness and we had to wrestle with what the Lord says in Matthew six fifteen. He says, but if you don't forgive those, uh, the men, men around you, their trespasses, neither will the father forgive you your trespasses. That's a hard word from the Lord. It's a hard word. We talked about fear. First, John four, uh, the scripture says there's no fear in love, but perfect fear casts out perfect love, casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And then last week, maybe our most difficult challenge so far as we dealt with the topic of lust and we had to look at the Lord's words in Matthew chapter 5 with regards to lust. And He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. That's a hard word with regards to lust. And so we've, we've we just had to contend. Lord speak to us. We don't want to we want to get out of this this thing in our heart that makes us just sort of, you know, come up with our own ideas about issues and how God would relate to us and we we have we all have this human tendency in us to to make this this uh, scale in our in our minds, this scale in our understanding that, so that that God somehow uh, grades on a scale according to our scale. You know, that, that there's some certain things that are worse than other things and certain things, you know, that just because, not because the Scripture says that, but just because we decide that. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at this Old Testament narrative uh, from... The very end of the reign of King David, he's coming to the end of his life. It's about 970 B.C., so we're, we're about a thousand years uh, before Christ. And David has, has uh, just been this amazing man after God's own heart. He's been ruling over the nation of Israel. The Scriptures have recorded uh, his... Uh, story, the chronicler here in First Chronicles has given us his all—the ups, all the downs, all the wonderful things that he's done, all the terrible failures that have uh, have uh, befallen him, and his response to those failures. And so, we really have this amazing opportunity to walk alongside David and to really see that the Bible doesn't hold anything back. The Bible's not withholding any information. We see all of the, the dirty laundry. We see all the struggles and all the failings and all the, the fear and all, all of this we see. And each of these things, bitterness and fear and lust, have all been, we've seen them, we, we could have every week just simply talked about the life of David. And so we're, we're at the end. And he is, uh, his, his mind is focusing on finishing well and he finishes well. And his son Solomon is is stepping up to uh, assume leadership of God's people and so what David has done is David has has just uh, has just immersed himself in preparing everything that he possibly can for this glorious moment when his son is able to build the temple this the permanent structure this amazing temple that that God is is going to uh, use in Jerusalem to meet with his people. And so David is, has, has just really, uh, you know, he's not bitter that, that he's not able to build it. He's not, uh, he understands that, that God is a sovereign God. And, and his words here uh, understand it, it's David's heart. He, he would love to be able to build this temple. But God's told him, no, David, you, you're a man of war. You've shed much blood. But your son Solomon will build my house. And so David received the word of the Lord. You know, he's come to a place in his life where he is under the lordship of a sovereign God. And he doesn't buck God. He is grateful to God. He's secure in God. And I pray that this morning that's where we would be. That we would have that heart as we approach this text. So will you pray with me? You pray alongside, don't listen to me pray, you pray with me this morning that God would, would give us a heart to hear from Him today. And, and not, to, not to hear what we think or what we want to hear, but let's hear what God has to say in His Scripture to us as His people this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning that You've given us Your Word. And Lord, it is the testimony of each and every one of us in this room That there have been times, Lord, for some, there may be always times, but God, we all know what it's like to just skim over your word, to forsake it, to forget it, to lay it down, to read it, but it just goes in one ear and out the other. But Lord, today we come, God, I pray in one accord to say, Lord, we're hungry. We want you to show us and to teach us today, Lord. So God, will you help us to push away all the distractions, Father, all the the things of this world that chirp at us, Lord. Right now, we want to declare there's nothing that is more important than what you have to say. Nothing. There's no circumstance. There's no situation. Nothing needs to be done. Nothing is more important than what you have to say. And we want to hear from you today, Lord. So we're going to give you our undivided attention and allow you to speak to our heart today, God. And we're going to receive it with gladness because it came from you. And we're going to thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. First Chronicles chapter 29, we'll begin reading in verse 10, this amazing prayer that David prays. Now, let me just set this up for you just a little bit, okay? What David has done is David has, has begun taking up an offering to build the temple. And the amazing thing about this is that, uh, is the way in which this happens. So really, if you, if you just go back and read, you know, about midway through chapter 28 and then all the way through chapter 29, you kind of get the whole picture of what's going on. But, uh, what's happened up until this point is essentially David has given all of his personal wealth, really. To build the temple, and so when we're reading it, uh, if if we don't if if you don't have a, a a good study Bible that's got notes, you're reading it and it's talking about shackles and all sorts of things that we don't have. But what you need to understand is that David has not just given to the building of the temple; he has he has absolutely exhausted his his wealth. He's given all that he's had, and David has amassed this enormous uh, amount of wealth as he has led the kingdom through his, his just amazing leadership and through his amazing giftedness in the Lord. And the amount of money that David has given is billions of dollars in today's money. You understand, when the Bible speaks of shekels of gold, these are 10-pound units of gold. And so the amounts of money that have been raised to build this temple is... In the many, many, many billions of dollars in today's economy, so it would be as if maybe Bill Gates didn't just set up a foundation, didn't just give a hundred million dollars of his vast wealth to to do a bunch of great things, which is a ton of money, and it's, it's it it does a, a lot of things, but but it doesn't really matter to him. It, it's not it's not. Changing his lifestyle in any way, shape, or form. You, you would have to imagine if Bill Gates gave away 98% of his fortune to charity. To, to do what God's called him to do. To, to build the kingdom of God. That would be the equivalent of what we see here. And this prayer, these words are, are just, they're, they're astonishing. So as we read, I just want you to, to just savor just each piece of what David prays from his heart as they, they had enough to build the temple just by what David gave. But all the leaders gave enormous amounts of money and the people just flooded in and began to just give and give and give. I mean, they, they had, they had hundreds of times. What they originally needed. And look at this prayer. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. Then David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand is to make great. And to give strength to all. Now therefore our God we thank you. And praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people? That we should be able to offer so willingly as this. For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. Now you notice as David prays and and it just continues. I mean, it's just fantastic as you keep reading that David is not, he's not given any credit. To the people for this extraordinary response that has happened. He's not, he's not taking any credit for himself, but, but he prays and everything that he says is so God centered and so God exalting. He's, he's merely saying, Lord, you are the great one. You are the one who has done all this. All that we have is because of you. You are the giver. And when we give, I mean that this, at the end of verse 14, in the Hebrew, what he's literally saying is that it is of your hand from your hand that we've given back to you. I mean, his understanding of what God has done is so extraordinary and so amazing. And you see that this represents the prayer of a man who has been transformed, who lives amongst the people that have been transformed. They're they're clearly not who they used to be. They're not like other nations. What do other nations do when they need to, to build a temple or build a palace or, or build something? Then the rulers tax the people and they, they come and they use fear and persuasion and, and, and they raise money that way and get the things done that they need to do. And yet here is a, a nation of people, regular people, just like me and you, who exist in a, in a time of far greater suffering and need than, than anything any of us in this room can imagine. A life that's so removed from the life that we live today and the luxury that we have, and yet their transformation is so evident in the way that they respond to God, that they're, they're thanking God that they're able to be a part of what God's doing, that it's so, they count themselves so unworthy and so, so blessed to just be able to say, God, thank you so much for letting me just be a part of what you're doing. And it's just so polar opposite, so completely countercultural from anything that We would experience outside of a transformed life today, in light of all that they'd seen, in light of all that God has done amongst them, they could only respond to God in this way. In other words, reflecting back on the goodness of God and on His miraculous faithfulness and His goodness towards them, and time after time after time, how God would respond. And he would provide, and he would care for, and he would nurture, and he would love, and he would reveal himself, and he's been so good that this is the only response of a heart that has experienced such a God. Just, Lord, thank you that we should be able to to offer so willingly as this. You see, David is thanking God for His transforming work in the people around Him. Do you see that? He's thanking God that Him and those around Him are able to give so willingly. And what He's saying is, is that that's not a human response. A human response is to hoard and to, to keep back and to, to hold in. And He's saying, God, thank You that we can so willingly as this Thank you for what you've done to change us to a point where we can willingly, willingly just give all that, all that we can, just all that we can, Lord. And you see, it's, it's not even about the need. That's what's so phenomenal is that there's so many layers to, to the amazingness of what's going on because the need has been met, but that's not the issue. It's not like there's someone up here saying, listen, here's the need. This is what we need. And then compassion moved on the hearts of the people and they responded. That would be great. But no, no, it's more, it's way more than that. The need is, is already been met several times over. That's not the issue. The issue is opportunity. The issue is, is that the door of opportunity to willingly reflect the transforming power of God in their lives has opened and they've just rushed in. That is an, a tremendous, tremendous truth. And you see this this radical love and radical generosity. It is the fruit of a transformed life. When you look at scripture, we see we see that 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 God's people and God is is always uh, giving us illustration over and over and over about what a transformed life looks like and how we can see the transformed lives around us and the things that that we need to look at in our own heart because there's an opportunity to be a part of God's kingdom through generosity. And yet, so oftentimes, we just... Retreat back from Scripture. And we settle for so much less. Now, what does radical generosity look like? Well, let's look, for example, at 1 Corinthians 13, this great love chapter in Scripture. and, And this will come up on the screen. I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 3. He says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. You see, Jesus... And the apostles take a different approach than what we normally would suppose uh, a talk like this would go. You see, because so many times you hear people saying things, people like me saying things to people like you, that are uh, just, they're not really biblical. Biblical. And so they're, they're trying to guilt people into doing things. They're trying to, uh, you know, put things before you to show you, you know, if, if I show you pictures of, of starving children and flies on their eyes and play some sad music and then suddenly everybody gets out their checkbook and, but is that what the scripture does? It almost seems like sometimes the scripture is trying to, Go the other direction. Just trying to say, look, if you got to see a sad picture of a starving kid, just keep your money. Notice what God says. He says, if you gave everything that you have, if you if you came to church today and you emptied out your bank account, you sold your house, you gave all the money. You sold every possession you have, you gave it all. Every single penny you have. And you say, I'm down to zero and I'm starting over again. If it wasn't done in love, it's zero. You see, notice the first of all, this isn't a needy God that we're dealing with here. And what I hate more than anything is that when somebody who's been entrusted with the Scripture makes God seem needy. So you need to understand something this morning. God doesn't need anything. Not a thing. And the last thing I would ever do is stand up here and get you to pity God. Oh no. He says you can give it all. You can even give your life. You can even give yourself to be burned. You can even be a martyr. But if you don't do it in love, it's for nothing. And so this the calling is for love. You see, people are always asking me. They're they're asking me questions like, well, you know, pastor, how much am I supposed to give? Like, what's the number? People want me to give them a number. Because if I give them a number, if I say, well, just give this percent or just do this, then it's like, okay, good, I know what I need to do. And so then I can just do that and then everybody will be happy. God will be happy with me and I'll be happy with Him. And He'll bless me and we'll be good. So I never answer that question. Because it's ridiculous. The heart behind it misses the whole point. I mean, let's suppose this morning that I could show you from Scripture that beyond a shadow of a doubt, the New Testament teaches that we're to give 50% of our income to the Lord. Would you do it? Now you, you you see what just happened right there. Now you 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 can take a deep breath. It doesn't say that. But what if it did? What if it did? Would we say, "Oh, that's too much"? Oh, whoa. whoa. What would I do? How could I? You see, the way our heart responds to that is just an indication of how far we've moved as a people from what God really says. The way we think is so skewed. It's so wrong. The, the, the issue with regard to generosity is love. Love. It's love. It's tangible, physical, literal love. It is love. And, and think about what the scripture has to say about love. In other words, the great commandment, Jesus says in Matthew, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. But what does that really mean? I mean, I need some context for that, Lord. Well, how about Ephesians 5? Husbands, love your wives as what? Now, wait a minute. So, we are to love our neighbor the way we love our spouse? I didn't say that. The Bible did. The Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible says, husbands, love your wife as yourself. That's how we're to love. But how do I I love God that way? How do I love my neighbor that way? Let's get a little more specific and tangible. I want to help us here this morning. I'm warning you. But this next text we're about to look at, it's a little scary. It's a little scary. But it shouldn't be. And I want you to know that I'm up at night thinking about you. That I'm I'm shedding tears, praying for you. Because the greatest horror of my life is that there are people that I know and that I love, that there are there are people within this flock. That I count as my brother and my sister that I will not see in heaven because you've You've rejected the gospel, you've convinced yourself that things are a way that Scripture simply doesn't say. And I know that there's no church where everyone's saved, but it just kills me to think about who in this room this morning might be in this text that we're about to read. And how is it that when we get to the end of this service, that maybe even God will reveal to you the condition of your heart and you will yet again say, no. Matthew chapter 25. These verses will come up or you can open your scripture to Matthew 25. Jesus is, uh, this is almost a parable. It's, uh, he's accounting real events, true events that are going to take place. But He's using parabolic language as He's drawing two things. Together, to give us a picture of what's going on, Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. Jesus is talking about His second coming. He says, now when He comes, when He returns with all of His angels, He's going to sit on His throne of glory. And all the nations are going to be gathered before Him, the Scripture says. And then He's going to separate them, one from another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Now, you got to imagine, to the best of your ability, this scene, that the king of the universe is is coming back. And when we love to think about the fact that He's coming back to get us. And that's wonderful and great and biblical and we need to long for that moment. But you also need to understand that when He comes back, things are different. The game has changed. You see, the door is now slammed shut. And those who walk through the narrow gate and those who have walked through the broad gate that leads to destruction are set in stone there won't be any changing and so he's going to set on his throne and all the nations are going to be gathered before him and he's going to stand in his glory and he's going to begin to divide out now I don't know how this division is going to work out but somehow he's going to begin to divide out the sheep and the goats He's going to begin to separate people. The true from the untrue. The saved from the not saved. And there's going to be a moment of utter astonishment. There's going to be shock and horror. Jesus Lord, Lord, we, we knew you. We, we, we did all these things in your name. No. Depart from me. I never knew you. So here's this separation, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now notice what he says. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when do we see you hungry? When do we feed you? When do we see you thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you, Lord, a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we, your people, your children, when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king from his throne will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it for one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Now, let's just pause a minute and make sure that we're crystal clear on what Jesus just said. He said that this division, in this moment, this division is going to occur between the sheep and the goats, between those who are truly His and those who are not. And in this moment, the conversation that is going to ensue between Him and the righteous is not a conversation about church attendance. It's not a conversation about reading your Bible every day. It's not a conversation about... Uh, how well you dressed or, or what your position of prominence was. It's about generosity. It's about giving to the poor. It's about meeting the needs of who. Now notice specifically what he says. He says, I say to you, verse 40, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these who, my brethren, who is that? Jesus never calls His enemies, and He never calls unbelievers His brethren. Never. Who is His brethren? Over and over and over, Jesus makes clear. Matthew 12. He's doing ministry. The crowds are around Him. And suddenly there's people barging through the crowd. And they're like, Jesus, there's someone here. They need to talk to you. Your family's outside. They need you right now. And His response... Verse 49, he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In this moment in Matthew 25, from the throne of glory... He looks at his sheep as a shepherd. He looks at the ones who are his, who are in his flock. And he says, you, you served me when you served the poor, when you went and gave to those who were in need. You went to my people who didn't have what you have. You did that to me. To me. And they said, wait a minute, we didn't see you. What do you mean? They're already in the flock. In other words, I'm thinking, just shut up and zip it. I'm in. That's all I need to know. But now they want more information. Well, wait, wait, wait. What do you mean? And I'm wondering if in this moment, part of that, when did we see you? When did we... is looking at who's in the goat camp and trying to sort out in their heart what just happened here. Is that is that my Sunday school teacher over there? Is that a... A deacon over there? An elder over there? Is that that, is that that person that sat in front of me every single Sunday over there? Is that my wife over there? Is that my husband over there? Is that my son over there? Is that my daughter over there? God, I don't understand. When did I see you naked? When was that, Lord? you got to realize the gravity of this moment hey, understand, there's no turning back. That line is dividing and there's no crossing over. It's done. And they're like, Lord, what do you mean? And he said, when you did that, when you cared for my people, you did that to me. You know, in order to do that, you have to be where his people are. You have to... You have to be where His people are in need. You can't do that if you don't... If you just isolate yourself from that, how do you do that? Jesus said, if you just give a cup of water in my name to my little children... Don't you know there's people amongst the goats that are saying, God, if I would have known... If I would have known they were thirsty. If I would have known they were hungry. If I would have known. I would have, I had 20 coats. I would have gave it to them. If I would have just known. He would have said, it's too late. It's too late. Verse 41. Then he's going to say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed of the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they also will answer him and say, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? When were you a stranger naked? When were you sick or in prison? And we didn't minister to you. And he answers them and says, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it unto me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Do you ever read things in Scripture and just think, Man, I wish that wasn't there. God, really? I know you don't say things you don't mean, Lord. But I'm just struggling with that. there's always people when a text like this is written just like in the last three weeks that start hedging in their heart what I've just read you're trying to get out from under the pressure and what I'm telling you to do is embrace it embrace it because scooting out from under it is what's gotten you in the shape you're in right now You need to receive it. You need to say, Lord, you are the king. This is what you say. It doesn't matter what I feel about it. This is what you say. Then we start playing this game in our mind. Whoa. Now, hold on a minute. Does this mean... Because you know the game we've played the last three weeks. Does this mean... Now, if I'm bitter... That I'm not saved. If I'm fearful, I'm not saved. If I lust, I'm not saved. And now here we are. If I'm not generous, I'm not saved. Stop. Stop. And so every week I have to go through the same routine. No. That's not what the Bible says. You're saved by grace through faith no no amount of works no righteousness in yourself none of that but is generosity the pathway to heaven is somehow the generous heart does that somehow get us where we need to go in other words what we need to do is just make sure that we we've, we've given to the needy So that on that day in Matthew 25, we're going to be among the sheep because we go, no, no, I gave. Problem solved. No. You see, because now we're back to where we started. You're still negating the central issue of generosity, which is love. It's got to be given in the right heart. You see, that's why when David prays, God, thank you that we can so willingly come and give. That we can be so transformed to be among your people, to be a part of what you're doing. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us. That we are excited. I mean, it's like, it's like Easter, except for instead of celebrating the resurrection, they're celebrating the opportunity to give. Can you imagine? Because God's been so good to them. So, how are we? generous to God. I mean, I want to help you. Listen, look look at 2 Corinthians 9. Here's what Paul says. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, here's the opportunity where this always the train always comes off the track. Because right here this is when somebody's going to say, now, do you see this? What you need to do is you need to give. Because if you give, God's going to bless you. And don't you want God to bless you? So therefore you need to give. But that is not what I'm saying. That is absolutely positively not. That's the opposite of what I'm saying. I'm saying if you this morning want to give so God will bless you, keep your money. Don't give a penny of it. Go to the casino with it. But don't give it here. Cause you have to keep reading. What does God say? So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. Because God loves a what? A cheerful giver. You give out of love. You give out of joy. You give out of gladness. You don't give out of compulsion. If you give so that you'll receive, that's compulsion. That's compulsion. You give cheerfully. God just is merely letting you know how this works. He's saying, by the way, I want you to know his full disclosure here. Here's the mechanics of how this works. I've designed this whole system. And so I want you to know how it works. The way it works is when you sow, you reap. Okay, so that's how it works. So now that we know how it works, but let me tell you how to do it. Give and only give cheerfully, joyfully, only. Don't give out of compulsion. Don't do that. You give gladly and joyfully. So. What's the point here? What's God trying to get us to see? He's trying to get you to see. He's trying to get me to see. That. That. Anything apart from cheerful giving is works righteousness and it is an affront to a holy God. Now, I want you to listen clearly to what I'm about to say. I want you to understand beyond a shadow of a doubt that religion, religion is going to teach you that I do good things in order to be accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I do good things. And those are two radically different responses. And there will be those on his right who understand the gospel and there will be those on his left who have lived according to their own mechanism, their own works righteousness, their own religion. So, well, I always thought there'd be all the people who just outright rejected Him. Well, they'll be there too. But I don't know them. I don't preach to them every Sunday. I don't hug them. I don't watch their families grow up. I don't celebrate the milestones in their lives Radical generosity, just generosity is the indicator of a transformed heart, of a transformed life, of a person who has come in contact and experienced the gospel, that you are accepted and that everything you ever have, everything you ever hoped to have, everything you ever dreamed of, everything, it all belongs to God anyway. And then once you find the gospel, don't you know, what does Jesus say? You're like a, a man walking in a field who finds a treasure and for the joy of that treasure, sells all that he has to buy that field, to possess that treasure. That's the gospel. The gospel, If, if, if to you the gospel is, oh, it's, it's a really great thing and I want to do everything I can do. to I want to do the least amount possible to hang on to it. You, you don't know what I'm talking about. If you're annoyed with me right now, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I mean, I'm just acknowledging that I know that you're there and you know you're there and that's okay. Listen, after last week, that's bring it on. So, why is it? Why is it? That there are people in the church who aren't generous. I mean, let's, let's just, you know, we're family. So let's have the talk. Let's just get all the cards out on the table. Why? Why? Well, I think you could classify all those Various answers to that question, you could just scoop it all up and put it in one big pile and say, fear. It's fear. It's fear that somehow you're not going to have enough for yourself. It's fear that somehow God's not going to provide for you. It's fear that somehow something... Bad's going to happen to you. It's fear that it's some fear, it's, and 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 it's a la- it's basically born out of a lack of trust for God. And this fear just comes up and it envelops you. And and think about how good God is. How good God is. You know. You read Matthew twenty five and you think, wow, God, you are. Harsh. That's harsh. But before you go there, think about how you got there. This God that we have a tendency to see as harsh could have asked for anything He wanted. He could have tested us in any way. He wanted to test us, couldn't He? He doesn't need to ask your permission, does he? No. He doesn't. And what did he do? He said, "Just just give me some. Just give me some so I know you love me." Again, he could have said, what would church look like this morning if there was a verse in the New Testament that said all those who are my disciples would give 75% of their income. Well, wonder, wonder what sort of... uh, Businesses and endeavors would be going on in all these mega church buildings today if that was in the scripture. They'd all be movie theaters and sports arenas and, I man, who would be here? Don't you see that the one who is pressing on you right now is the one who's also saying now, Look at the other side of the coin. Look at the generosity that's been given to you. In other words, the one who is saying to you, Yeah. You. You didn't, you didn't give me a drink when I was thirsty. You didn't clothe me when I was naked. You weren't there for me when I was hungry. That God is the same God who said. But in the midst of your rebellion, in the midst of your waywardness, as you mocked me and scorned me and shunned me, I sent my son. I'm all in. I've given all that I have. I gave the very, very best for you. I gave everything for you that you may know, that you wouldn't doubt, that the Spirit of God would, would dwell within you, that the fruit of that life would be evident around you, that I've made every way, every provision for you to live a life of peace. With me to know that I am your father. You can come to me. Listen. You think anyone there with David that day when he was praying? Do you think anyone there knew God as a friend? Do you think that? Do you think what do you think would have happened if somebody would have said, "Yeah, God's my friend"? They'd have probably stoned him. You you don't say that about that God. But Jesus comes. He says, "You are my friend. You're my family." I'm giving it all for you. I'm giving everything so that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt my devotion, love, care, compassion, provision. Listen, who would slaughter their son and then let you sink. Who do that? What God would slaughter his son to pay the price to redeem you and me as individual people and then turn a blind eye in our need and let us sink? who would do that? Not the God I know. You can count on him. What else could he do? And yet, we respond in fear. Proverbs 11 says this One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. If I had a nickel, if i had a nickel for every time i've heard somebody say oh man if i if i could ever if i can ever just get to the place where i could be generous i'm like do you read the bible do you? Mites, pennies. Doesn't matter. It's the heart. It's the heart. Don't you see? It's the heart. It's fear. What is the opposite of fear? Faith. And what does the Bible say about faith? James chapter 2. What, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him if a brother or sister is naked or destitute for daily food? And one of you says to him, depart in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you do not give him, give them the things which are needed for the body, then what does it profit? Thus also that faith by itself, it doesn't have works, it is dead. It's dead, it's worthless, it's useless. You can't turn a blind eye. You cannot do that. It's not an option. Because when you do, you're turning a blind eye to who? To Him. To Him. Do these things, Jesus says. Do them. Meet the needs of the poor. Leverage the gospel through your compassionate ministry. Give of your resources and your time to serve those who are in need. Listen, there's a million texts for for this one that talk about serving the unbeliever. But just this specific text and the way in which it deals with the brethren, with the people in the family who need, they're in need. By this it is evident, the Scripture says, who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother, the Scripture says. If you don't understand who your brother is, If you don't understand what I'm telling you this morning, it's because you don't want to hear. But we need to hear this message. We haven't been given this life to just ease along the lazy river of American Christianity. I'm not telling you that we need X amount of dollars now. Everybody get your checkbook out. I didn't pull the little stunt where we first have this talk, but then we mysteriously move the offering to the end of the service today. Because see, compelling you, That kind of compulsion will merely multiply the problem that we already have. The issue is the heart. And I can assure you beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's never been a moment, never has there been a moment that I've pastored this church That I have said, Lord, what we need is more needy people to care for. Mm -mm. Never. The cry of my heart is continually, day in and day out, Lord, please move in the hearts of your people that we might care for that which you have put before us. Please, Lord, help us. So David finishes the end of 1 Chronicles 29, the end of his prayer. He says, O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have... Prepared to build the house for your holy name. is from your hand. And it's all your own. And I know also, my God, that you test the heart to have pleasure and uprightness. As for me and the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now, with joy, I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers. Keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of our heart as Your people and fix our heart toward You. Father, may it be true today that in this moment, in this place, in every life represented here today, that You might fix this intent and this purpose in our heart. That we might shed the condemnation that is creeping upon us. And Lord God, we might flee into the freedom that we have in You. And seize the opportunity, Lord God, that You've put before us as a congregation. Father, protect us, Lord. Protect us from growing complacent. From saying, our church is full. We've baptized so many. Things are good. And resting. Lord, all that we have Is from your hand. And Father God, we have brothers and sisters who right now are hungry and thirsty and needy. Help us, Lord, to see that they are you. And then, oh Lord, We might experience the joy of willingly, graciously seizing the opportunities that you give us as a good father loves his children for his glory in your name. Amen. Let's stand with every head bowed, every eye closed. Just a moment for you and the Lord, wherever you are. It's a moment for you to respond. Respond and say, Lord, you're the Lord, you're the King, you're the one. God, right now I really don't care what anybody around me thinks. All I care about is You, Lord. God, maybe this morning You want to come down here and kneel down and say, God, thank You. Thank You for how You have transformed my heart and made me such a generous person, Lord. And I am so encouraged this morning by that hard word, Lord. It is so ministered to my heart, God, because I... I, See in the mirror every day the fruit of the transformation that you've accomplished in my life, Lord. God, I simply, I can't give enough. Lord, I'm so grateful and so thankful for all that you've given me. And I just want to kneel down and say, God, thank you for being good to me. Lord, maybe today you want to come down and and you need to kneel down before God and straighten some things out. Say, oh, Lord, God, mend my heart. Make me right with you, Lord. God, give me clarity and understanding, not of my ways, but of your ways, Lord. I want to love you with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. And I want to love my neighbor as myself, Lord. And God, that's the desire of my heart. God, hears that prayer. He'll move in a mighty way. But understand, you cannot do that of your own unction. You can't do that by trying harder, by willing yourself. It just won't work. You can't transform yourself. Maybe this morning you, you know that it's time to lay aside everything else and come to the Savior. Say, God, rescue me. Thank you. I've known about you for a long time, but God, I want to know you. And in whatever way, whatever words God's put in your heart, you just come, come, come down. Grab me, grab one of the pastors by the hand and just say, Lord, help me to know you in a personal intimate way. God, I long to know you. Be my Savior, be my Lord and my King. Whatever your need is, you come. His hand is open. It's open. You come. In Jesus' name.